Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. People have asked me how I maintained hope while I was there. Well, I didn't maintain hope. Um, in fact, the whole, the, the whole key to survival, for me at least, was um, not to hope, was to learn not to hope at all. In other words, not to think too much about the future. Um, after too much time in Somalia, I started to assume that I wasn't going to see my family and friends again. And when the pirates tried to say, well, Michael, you're only going to get out in two weeks, or it's only going to be another month, so don't worry, um, I stopped believing them. I, out of necessity, because when I did believe them, I would get my hopes up for the next two weeks or the next month, <clears throat> and then when the when the deadline passed, I would be in much worse shape than before. So that cycle of hope and despair became sort of a breaking wheel, and in order to survive, I had to detach myself from it completely. And um, that lesson of learning to live without hope, which turns out to be possible, um, is something you can take with you into daily life. Uh, it's something that doesn't necessarily go away. What is freedom and what happens when it's taken away? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with American writer, journalist and memoirist Michael Scott Moore, whose gripping new memoir, The Desert and the Sea, 977 Days Captive on the Somali Pirate Coast, has just been published by HarperCollins, where Michael writes... I wanted to see parts of Somalia relevant to my project other than journalists had seen. I wasn't trying to overreach. But I was a writer with a weakness for big ideas. And my ideas, more than anything, carried me off to Somalia. Michael goes on to state, hostages lived all around in a parallel world. So what is it like to be held hostage by Somali pirates? And what does it do to your body, mind and soul? My name is Michael Scott Moore. I'm a journalist and novelist, and I'm going to read from a portion of my new memoir about being held hostage by Somali pirates. We started back to our hotel in President Allen's car. It was midday, and the sun glared on the rocky graves. Other cars wound behind us, but soon our driver slowed and made a careful remark in Somali. Technical, Gerlach translated. That was our fixer. We don't know what kind. I didn't see it at first. The battle wagon stood to the left of the road, loaded with drowsy-looking men. Can we just drive on, I said. Gerlach said, it is one of ours. I felt a moment of relief. A car honked, a technical jerk to life. I had not flown to Somalia to test my nerve against the worst fears of foreign correspondents. I didn't want to tempt death, but I had broken one of the cardinal rules of anyone who pokes around in troublesome parts of the world, which is to keep your family's lives unaffected. The horror of crossing that line wasn't evident to me when the technical approached the car with its cannon aimed through our windshield. It wasn't even clear when a dozen or so men jumped off holding weapons. It wasn't clear because my brain recoiled in denial. I told myself it was a traffic stop. These armed clan soldiers just wanted to see my passport. No problem. My German passport was here in my bag. I had never witnessed denial working in my own head with so much specific clarity, but it moved like a gyroscope compensating for a drastic blow that hadn't even arrived to maintain some balance 
and when the gunman swarmed to my side of the car and fired into the air, the balance wobbled and my bowels twisted, and I understood very well what the fuck was going on. I leaned against Gerlach to cover my face with one arm as if that would help. When I turned out to be alive, in spite of the thunder of gunfire, I held the door closed with my right hand. They wrenched it open and pounded my wrist with their Kalashnikovs. I had never felt so much violent malice at such close range, and I kept pulling at the door, hoping to buy time while our guard in the front seat performed his job. I was confused by the number of men who kept pounding my wrist with their gun barrels. I felt bones crack. I let go of the door, and they pulled me out into the dust outside and beat me on the head. Maybe death arrives with the same sudden malice, the same transformative shock. I noticed a lack of gunfire from our guard. He must have quailed at the sight of the cannon. Somebody help me, I shouted when the men slugged my face and broke my glasses in the dust. Somebody help me. Of course, nobody did. Somalis in the cars behind us, respectful of the violence, just watched. Gunmen pulled at my arms and ripped my shirt. I heard Gerlach shout. I couldn't tell whether kidnappers had subdued him in the car or pulled him into the road, whether this abduction was about to spark a clan war. I was only aware of gunmen, shouted Somali, and white dust. I struggled. The kidnappers pulled my backpack away, and I noticed blood on my clothes from the gun muzzles clobbering my scalp. My wrist ached, and I tried to see faces to recognize any of the kidnappers from our own Hobio guards, but in the blur of kicks and rifle blows, nobody looked familiar. The horror of crossing that bright, clear line drenched me like a cloudburst, like blood and sweat, and I wanted to rewind everything. While they dragged me away, I felt a reflex of horror for the, my family and the burden I was about to become. The men bundled me into a waiting land cruiser and drove me to a house on the edge of Galkayo. One of them handed my backpack to a tall and furious-looking man in the driveway. He took the bag but waved us off. We sped away to the east, and I sat with ripped clothes and a bleeding scalp, squeezed by three gunmen bouncing across the bush for several hours. Okay, okay, the pirates in the front seat said. No problem. The car bounced brutally over a ledge, so my head hit the roof and left a blood stain on the fabric. Fuck, I said and pointed at the blood, cradling the, the broken wrist in my lap. At first, I spoke mainly in obscenities. Okay, okay, they said. Really well done on the book, Michael, The Desert and the Sea. I have to say, it's an unbelievably engrossing read. Um, it's very moving in parts, uh, very emotional. But um, you pitch out so many different types of questions to the reader um, in relation to fate, in, to, in relation to freedom, human rights, whatever it is. And um, you do it so creatively, so hats off to you on that. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off. When I say the word piracy, what springs to mind? What do you automatically think of? Well, <laughs> well I, I think of the Somalis who guarded me in, in Somalia. But I mean, of course, it's a, um, it, it's a loose term. It, it refers mainly to crime on the ocean. And I was kidnapped on land. Uh, but it didn't take too long for the pirates to actually put me on board a ship they had hijacked. And what's interesting from your memoir is how you write about different um, parts that you dealt with. Some were more enlightened than others. Some were more humane. Some became somewhat of a friend to you, if that's not stretching it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, there was such a broad range of um, uh, pirates there. Tell me, in all your time in Somalia, what do you think drives somebody to become a, a pirate? Is it purely out of financial necessity or do you think there's political motivations at play as well? Like, what is it? Oh, I think it's money. I think that there would be far, far fewer pirates in Somalia if there were more jobs. Um, the pirates do try to say that uh, they're, they're out on the water trying to defend the coastline, but that doesn't seem to be true um, if you know, they capture people on land like they did me. Um, 
the roots of Somali piracy are in illegal fishing and, and the ships from other countries that come in and sort of loot the waters. Um, that's where Somalis sort of got the first practice at stopping ships and, and asking for money. They used to call it a license fee to fish. Uh, but once it became a headline in the West, once, in other words, once they were capturing cargo ships, um, it was no longer about defending the, the coastline. You travelled to Somalia in 2012, I think it was January 2012, and you mentioned in the memoir that you hadn't um, got, uh, you weren't covered for insurance in terms of you went over um, Mm -hmm. on a a reporting uh, mission, but you didn't have um, the right, I suppose, uh, insurance in place to cover you should you end up in a hostage situation. I'm just wondering, were you conscious of the risks when you set out when you went over to Somalia? Because, you know, it it was very um, clear at that stage that, you know, you huge civil unrest. It was a very uh, rapidly changing political environment. You'd All the clans, as you describe it in, in the memoir, all pitching uh, for work, so to speak, and all pitching off each other. And, um, you know, it reads um, so exciting in one part, but frightening in another way. Well, I was very conscious of the risks. In fact, uh, I had looked into insurance a couple of months before and it sounded uh, like it was going to work. I, I had my uh, request denied about a week or so before uh, the trip, and we had put so much into planning the trip that I decided to go anyway. Um, that was, you know, a big mistake, obviously. But um, so it would be bad for kidnappers to assume that every time somebody goes into the field like that, they're covered with insurance. Um, that's that's the other thing. In fact, most of the time, you're not supposed to talk about this sort of insurance. You had a range of different people you were working with, and you got close to uh, one uh, guy called Gerlach. Can you tell me about him? Yeah, Gerlach. So he's mentioned in the reading, and he's got a German name because he married a German wife, but he's a Somali elder. And he's the man that my partner, Ashwin, uh, and I found while we were um, preparing to go to Somalia. Ashwin's a documentary maker who's been in and out of war zones. And uh, we talked to Gerlach, and we're interested in him because he was from the region. He was an elder from that region, and he um, had led another German journalist through the same part of central Somalia just a few months before successfully. So um, we were taking a trip that he had done before, and um, he he was going to, he had good connections among the clan in that part of Somalia too. You described very movingly there uh, um, and how you write it, it's very powerful in terms of um, how you were taken hostage. How long did it take you before to kind of realise that this was could be possibly a long-term situation, that you could be maybe months or possibly years. I know um, the first week or two you were uh, getting over some of your injuries, you were quite roughed up, um, you had hurt yourself and, um, you know, you're clearly in a huge, uh, going through huge trauma. But how long did it take before things began to sink in that, you know, it could be quite a while? Well, I think once I was captured, I hoped against hope that somehow it would be quick. Um, within the first three months, there was always a chance that something quick was going to happen, at least from the pirates' point of view. They kept, um, even though the demand was $20 million, they kept trying to say, well, it'll, it'll all be over soon anyway. And I was fresh and foolish enough to believe them. But I, I think after the third month, they put me on board a ship, uh, a, a tuna ship that they had captured out near the Seychelles and anchored near Hobio. And once I was on the ship, I think I realized it was going to take quite a bit longer because you don't, you don't just put someone on there and then take them off uh, a little bit later. 
I found how you sketched out the whole issue of ransom demands very interesting because you you, you know you go into detail different nationalities and um, there was different prices for I think you're right ransom demands were very different for every national group a Chinese man costs three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a Cambodian one hundred and fifty thousand and then um, you then kind of tease out that you know the idea of uh, you know the ransom demand it was all to have a kind of a huge impact on the family a massive mm-hmm. shocker and then to work it from there and I suppose it was a psychological game uh, as much as tactics was it? I, I think so but I think they were also they probably put some sort of wish attached to each ransom and I think they they had some sort of total that they wanted to get for the whole crew so they just sort of pulled numbers out of thin air and, and tried to cobble that together it was completely unrealistic but um, that was like like you said, that was the effect that it had on each hostage as soon as they hurt. Um, I think I, in the book I say that, that each hostage just thought it was completely crazy. Can you describe daily life uh, as you went through it, if you can call it daily life? You know, at the start you were moved around quite a bit. Then you had uh, um, quite a long time on one of those cargo ships. And then you were moved around again from different houses. So you would obviously were in different types of terrain dealing with whether it was outdoors or indoors or whatever. But can you describe the kind of ebb and flow of daily life being a hostage? Because, you know, what we see on uh, TV or, uh, or whatever, people have kind of certain ideas it. But um, I know one of the things I found all the way through your captivity, every time you had to go to the toilet, you had to ask, mm-hmm. didn't you? Yeah, that's right. The, so I was held on a tuna ship um, and the, the tuna ship um, was actually a, it was a more comfortable place to live than on land, um, even though it wasn't comfortable at all. Um, on the tuna ship, we could actually sort of keep to ourselves. Um, there were about 30 of us hostages, the crew, the whole hostage crew two of us from land. And we could sort of go to the bathroom whenever we wanted. Um, it wasn't very comfortable, but, but we could. When I was on land, um, every time I, ha- I had to pee, I had to say something to the guards, and they had to sort of guard my way to the toilet. Um, you know, on land especially, nothing happened. Um, most of the time I was alone, and so I, I would wake up with first call to prayer at around 5 in the morning. I would get a bowl of beans, and that would be it. We'd wait for the day to warm up, and um, sometime in the afternoon, the pirates would get their cut, which is their drug. And um, then, for them, the day improved. You know, they started to get high. Um, for me, it got worse because I would have to listen to them chatter. Um, I tried to keep my mind occupied. I mean, I, I I wrote and composed in my head, and I memorized things until I had sort of a long routine um, of things to memorize to go through every morning after my bowl of beans. Uh, and I also, uh, after a while, I got a, a mat that I could do yoga on, and that helped too. Um, but sometimes the, the afternoons were horrible. They were, you know, they were just sort of hot and full of flies. You write how you could tell the time by looking at the colour of the sky. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because I suppose part of what it is to be human is to adapt and um, to be creative with your surroundings and mm-hmm. to find a new way of living every day. And it seems that you did that. Were you surprised by your own reserves in terms of emotional and mental reserves? Well, yes. The, the, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to be able... If you had asked me beforehand whether I could survive two, two years and eight months in captivity like that, I would have said no, probably. But um, So, yeah, in that sense, it surprised me. The, the, lo- looking at the color of the sky was... Um, the reason it worked, so first of all, I could see the sky best 
from the ship when I was sleeping in a cabin with the porthole window out on the sort of dawn horizon. And so from the color of the the, the horizon in the morning, I could tell more or less what it, what time it was because on on the equator there, which is uh, where we were in Somalia, pretty close to it, um, the the sun doesn't shift much. So the the color of the sky every morning was pretty reliable, uh, especially because the weather was clear. You got malaria at one stage and you write about that and the guys were pretty uh, prompt about getting you drugs. And mm-hmm. um, as I was reading that, I thought, well, you know, um, you know, well, they're kind of decent guys. And then you realise, well, no, hold on a minute here. You are a product, something to be sold. Yeah, so right. you had to be fit and well. Um, you were a commodity, if you will. And um, it's so interesting because you're, as a reader, you're kind of sketching out all the different scenarios. But did that, um, that must have played, drove you mental in one way in your head because you, you know, the will to survive is one thing. But then when you realise, you know, how somebody's helping you, but it's a loaded type of help. Well, I knew, I knew the reason they were helping me. I mean, I knew um, that I, I was being treated for malaria only because they wanted to keep me alive. Uh, but I also knew that they had allowed um, other hostages just to die, um, including Western hostages. There was one case that I mentioned in the Desert in the Sea of a, a French woman who was actually plucked from northern Kenya, and she needed heart medicine. And when they kidnapped her uh, from the resort, they neglected to bring along her heart medicine, and of course she died. So um, people in pirate hands don't tend to be killed on purpose precisely because they're worth money but they do tend to die by accident um, and out of neglect or something like that. So that's what I was afraid of. You also um, uh, went on hunger strike as well, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't like that. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about that? Because that yeah. was a very risky decision to make. But I suppose in, as I was thinking about that and I said, well, maybe, you know, if you're in, you've got so little um, options, that gave mm-hmm. you some form of power and agency. And um, I can remember reading um, years ago Brian Keenan's um, memoir and he talked Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, options, jam options was all he had. And um, so he decided then to eat jam, which he hated because it was an option. And um, it's amazing how we do that, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I I think it's interesting that um, you, even when you have only one option, it's a choice whether you want to accept it or not um, and whether you actively want to choose it or not. And that's a very, sometimes a very important lesson. You got very close to a guy called Rowley, who seems like a very um, lovable character, a very uh, fun and warm type of a man. Can yeah. you tell me about his story? Because he was one of, I think, 28 uh, hostages, was he? Uh, no, he, so he was a fisherman, but he was a fisherman from the Seychelles. In fact, I met him almost on my first day as a hostage. And I spent several months with him because the, the pirates decided to keep me and Rowley together. Um, and when I was placed on the tuna ship, uh, Rolly was placed on it with me. So we were, in some sense, the guests of um, the 28 crew that were on board the, the tuna ship um, and held hostage. Those guys were mostly from East Asia. And um, Rolly and I got to know them very well, but we couldn't necessarily speak to them because they, had, um, they all spoke about five different languages. Um, and there, there was sort of a pigeon, um, a mixture of Chinese and English that was spoken on, on the ship which Rolly and I had to learn in, just in order to get to know those guys. But we learned it, and um, we, we got to know some of those kids really well. The, the Asian crew of the tuna, tuna vessel were um, mostly very young men. 
But but Roly was a grandfather from the Seychelles, uh, and really a wonderful guy. When looking back at it all now, do you think that possibly do you think you could have gone through the first few months had Roly not been there? Had you not had that kind of, I suppose, some form of intimacy, that type of connection, that you clearly kept each other going, and you know, you kind of carried each other to a degree. We really did, and in some sense, he taught me how to be a hostage. Um, he had been captive already for three months. So I, I learned a few things about um, managing the pirates. Um, I don't know. The first three months would have been really difficult if I had, if I had been completely alone. I, and I think the, the sort of pleasure of getting to know Roly really helped. You write very um, movingly about some of the days when you were, um, you know, you felt terrible guilt for your family. You write about, you know, kind of the nature of uncertainty and what it can do to your mind and soul and how you dealt with that. But you do touch on, um, you know, that at some very dark moments that you questioned whether you would have had it in you to commit suicide or not. And you write, I steered around the question of suicide in some days only by code logic. And then you say something on the lines of killing myself would have meant defeat for everybody I loved. Yeah, yeah, no, that and that was, like I said, on some days that was the only thing that kept me from doing it. Um, I mean, emotionally, um, it, I very much wanted to. I thought, I thought that was somehow, you know, the best solution for everybody. And um, it, it took talking myself through it to, to, you know, not to do it. It, it would have, it would have been an effort. It would have meant stealing a gun from one of the guards, but it, it's one of the things that was on my mind. I missed having soft-boiled eggs with my coffee and listening to the BBC. <laughs> I'd never been rich, but in the Somali wilderness, the coffee, the radio and the eggs felt like impossible luxuries. That made me laugh so much. And, you know, you go into, um, um, you know, details about how you try to kind of, uh, you were constantly getting, I remember, mango juice or something. And um, that, you know, how you improvised. And it was like you improvised with oats, I think, somewhere there as well. And um, <laughs> how having one thing can keep you sane. And it probably sounds very simple. But we've all been there in our lives, you know, whether you're in hospital uh, where you're travelling on a, doing some trek or whatever, and it's whether it's the pack mm-hmm. of biscuits or whatever it is. Right. But, it, you know, you're in this hugely dramatic situation, hostage situation, in a foreign uh, Tehran, which is, um, you know, quite obscure from most people's kind of daily lives and quite mm-hmm. different. But there you are complaining about coffee. It's quite and funny, I, yeah. isn't it, what it all comes down to eventually? Yeah, and I just wanted my soft-boiled egg, yeah. I mean, I got used to the BBC and a soft-boiled egg and, and good coffee in Berlin. You know, I was, I'm, I'm an American, but I was living in Berlin for a long time. Um, and uh, it just didn't seem like too much to ask. But when I was there in Somalia, it really was. Uh, and at some point, the pirates gave me a radio, and then I had, um, I, had a, I had two out of three. I had the radio and some very bad coffee. Uh, and then I thought, well, all I need is an egg, and I can at least have a decent breakfast. You do touch on um, some areas in terms of your own personal theology, but you also look at, you know, um, you know, your ideas on what makes a good Muslim. And I know um, um, Gerard said something to you on the lines of, you know, pirates aren't real Muslims or they aren't good mm-hmm. Muslims. And you tease out uh, in a very interesting way the reality of some of these guys and what they were doing, but also their fate. And, you know, you mentioned there earlier, you know, they got up to, to do the morning prayers. Some of them were very devout, yet they could take somebody 
hostage. So how mm-hmm. did you wrestle with all of that? Because there's so many contradictions there. But I suppose they could have sold it to themselves that they were doing it as an, out of necessity. And, yes, you know, exactly. and they also okay. saw you as um, effectively a white Christian outsider, basically. That's exactly why they thought it was okay to take me hostage. So once I actually interviewed one of the guards um, about his religion, I told, I challenged him. I said, uh, Bashko, you're, you're a Muslim. Um, and he was very proud of that. And I said, but you're also a thief. And I, I asked him to reconcile that. And he actually had an answer for me. I mean, he had a justification, uh, which was that stealing from an infidel isn't theft. And, um, I, I, you know, I'm a travel writer. I've been to plenty of Muslim, Muslim countries. And I, I'd never heard that particular interpretation of Islam before. Um, but it was, it was interesting to hear that, especially from a Sufi, because most, most Somalis are Sufis, which means they're not fundamentalist. Um, but that struck me as a slightly fundamentalist answer. He actually referred to a verse in the Quran. But arguably, you know, no matter what decisions or judgment calls we make, moral, political, social or otherwise in our personal lives, we're always going to have a crafty justification for it. You know, we all sell ourselves, our, you know, stories to ourselves to justify whatever we do. Now, yours is clearly an extreme case. Yeah, well, extreme, but not even uncommon. I mean, I, I just to wrestle with that in the desert and the sea. I, I went into a, a, a sort of meditation on um, the the ideas that people use to sort of justify all sorts of bad bad behavior and murderous behavior in some in some cases. And you know, in the Cold War, um, one side or the other of the Cold War, the ideals of communism were sometimes used as excuses for murder. Um, the ideals, uh, the ideals of the Catholic Church. Um, there are not just ideas in some religions that can um, bring people to that to that point. Um, there, there are ideas everywhere, um, which made me think that there's something in the soil, you know, in which an idea gets planted, that's almost more important than the idea itself. Tell me, Michael, you uh, picked up the Bible um, and you um, started reading from it while you were over there and it seems that it kind of gave you some consolation but I suppose on a, on a practical level also irrespective of consolation that it was company was something to do and it was part of a routine within your day and it filled the day but I'm just wondering being in such a vulnerable um, position as you were and then picking up this um, incredible text uh, how did that all go and what did you learn? Well at, at first it didn't, didn't help at all as a matter of fact uh, I, I was raised Catholic, and uh, I was a very devout little boy, actually. Um, I knew my stuff, but I, I hadn't read the Bible in a while. And on the ship, there were five Filipinos, which means five Christians, among the East Asians. And the, they handed me um, a Bible and said, well, you know, we, we think you might find some consolation here. So, cause we do. So, uh, And I was just happy to have something to read, especially. I mean, I, it had been three months at least since I'd been captured, and I, I'd had no books. So... I read the Bible twice. It didn't, it didn't save me <laughs> the way it should have, at least not at first. Uh, I think some of the ideas sank in, and, and later they became very important. Um, but I was surprised by how vague the, the Bible can be. About um, I was looking for tips about how to die. You know, I was looking for wisdom about facing death. And I found it remarkable how vague the Bible could be about the, the, the afterlife and all that sort of thing. So um, I, the Bible was... It, it certainly helped to read it twice and, and to absorb all those stories again. Uh, but I, I don't think it hadn't, it, I don't think it worked to change until much later in my captivity.
I'm just wondering, Michael, you know, pain and suffering can hit us in all different types of ways all through our lives. And, you know, how we deal with pain in our 20s is very different to how we deal with pain in our 40s or possibly in our 50s or 60s or certainly how you process it. Um, I'm just wondering, um, you know, you were in your, I think, maybe early 40s, was it, when you travelled out to Somalia? And uh-huh. then as you matured through this whole experience, how did it challenge your ideas on maybe pain and suffering? And, and ha- has it changed it and in some way? I'm not sure. I, I think it just got more painful while I was there. Uh, I, I, I think that another ideal I grapple with in the desert and the sea is some, some ideas of stoicism, especially from Epictetus. And Epictetus writes that, you know, you come to philosophy... Um, only when everything else goes wrong, or uh, you know, once you have uh, some suffering to overcome, and um, that—that certainly. By the by, the second year of captivity in Somalia, um, there was there was no getting around um, that I I needed some sort of help. But, you know, um, you could look at pain and suffering and different types of experiences in life and irrespective of, let's say, the timeline, that we do in some way learn or are shaped by them and that that, that can oh, open no us question. up in some ways. And sometimes it's not, you know, to look at things, you know, in a kind of, a, um, you know, in this very tangible how I benefited or how I became this or, you know, it's very reductive. But sometimes the impacts of these experiences can be um, way more subtle, way more creative um, and unexpected to what you think. So I'm just wondering, In you know, you've clearly written um, a terrific uh, memoir. It's um, deeply challenging for any reader because you're you're faced with your own ideas on um, your own mortality. And also you sketch out a very interesting family story and how you learned to understand your parents through your captivity. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, from coming out of captivity, um, have you noticed a change? Well, one thing that doesn't work when you're in a situation like that is um, sort of um, ha- hallmark ideas or, or sentimental um, phrases that, that help people get through the day. So um, people have asked me how I maintained hope while I was there. Well, I didn't maintain hope. Um, in fact, the whole, the, the whole key to survival, for me at least, was um, not to hope, was to learn not to hope at all. In other words, not to think too much about the future. Um, after too much time in Somalia, I started to assume that I wasn't going to see my family and friends again. And when the pirates tried to say, well, Michael, you're only going to get out in two weeks, or it's only going to be another month, so don't worry, um, I stopped believing them I, out of necessity, because when I did believe them, I would get my hopes up for the next two weeks or the next month. <clears throat> and then when the, when the deadline passed, I would be in much worse shape than before. So that cycle of hope and despair became sort of a breaking wheel. And in order to survive, I had to detach myself from it completely. And um, that lesson of learning to live without hope, which turns out to be possible, um, is something you can take with you into daily life. Uh, it's something that doesn't necessarily go away. Uh, it's, it's not that you don't have hope. It's that you don't live for the future. And um, that was a very difficult lesson to learn in Somalia. And I'm sure different types of readers and uh, and those who have um, talked to you about this would engage with that in a very different way because, you know, every mind deals with the nature of, I suppose, hope and certainty and, you know, whether we look into the future or we live well in the present. We all deal with that differently, don't we? Oh, I think so. I, 
In fact, um, someone pointed out to me that, that most Holocaust survivors um, actually did find something to hope, uh, to cling to, and, and some hope to, to maintain. Um, so I think it's, it's different for every, everyone. Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American writer, journalist and memoirist Michael Scott Moore about his engrossing new memoir, The Desert and the Sea, which has just been published by HarperCollins. I asked Michael about the work of British travel writer and novelist Gerard Henley and his iconic book Warriors, which Michael quotes in the book. We do not know the size and strength of our manias until they fall upon us and drag us down. Or the barrenness of our inner deserts until real loneliness, fear, bewilderment and sun madness have cast us into them. I asked Michael, how do those words sit with him now? It is, and it was very resonant for me while I was there. Um, man, and he just wrote that as a as a soldier of the British Imperial Army while he was down in Somalia. So he was a, an Irishman born in uh, England, but um, uh, he was just bored and lonely as a, as a military officer, you know, not as a captive. 
Um, but he was very eloquent about the effects that that sort of desert landscape could have on um, outsiders' minds. And it really does sink into you. Tell me, um, your mum seems like an unbelievable uh, woman. She was 72 when you were kidnapped. And, um, you know, how she dealt with uh, dealing with FBI agents coming into the house. She dealt with all the ransom demands. She navigated such um, an un, you know, such a frightening uh, terrain. And she kept her head. Uh, she seems to have been very disciplined with herself. And then she also, which was so impressive, you know, I think she liked golf and tennis and stuff. And she, you know, she had lots of women that she um, was friendly with in her community. Yeah. And what's so impressive was that she clearly made a decision to, um, you know, put in the fight but also keep herself sane as she did it. And I thought that yeah, was very smart. Yeah, she, she impressed the FBI too. So they, um, they, they thought she was quite good on the phone. And they, they told me later that um, yeah, I, she was obviously very emotional. But when she got on the phone, she could switch it off. She knew how to be strong um, with, with these people who were trying to, you know, for, first of all, trying to rob the family, but second, threatening to kill me. And all. Were you surprised by her resilience? Uh, no, not completely. <laughs> I was surprised that she took on the, the job of negotiating. Um, the, that was uh, that that was never, uh, you know, planned in in advance, and that was not my intention. And it was uh, something that just sort of happened because of the way the phone the first phone calls happened. Um, so I was surprised that she maintained um, her stability in that position, but. Um, you know, if you knew my mom, I, I suppose it wouldn't come as that much of a surprise. The first ransom demand was, I think, somewhere around 20 million. <laughs> it's like, yeah. uh, you know, it's that just says to me chaos. Oh, and th- then, that staggered everybody. Yeah, yeah. And then it was, you know, it was whittled down over the years and your mum kind of did fundraisers. But um, how you go into the story of the guy who came over to do... Um, I suppose, broker the deal is incredible. This guy um, was pretty much trained in the field, ex-army. Can you tell me about him? There was one man who came in. Um, there was one man who came in before I got out, uh, ho- hoping to get me out for a certain sum. And he he was a former American SEAL who had some contacts among uh, the, that particular Somali clan. And... Um, when he landed, he actually, the, the pirates told me that I was going to go free. I didn't quite believe them, but I packed my things. And that afternoon, a translator came in with a text. And the text was perfectly written, including um, the spelling of my, my address in Berlin. So the, the German street name was spelled correctly. And I thought, well, that's probably not faked, which means somebody really is trying to come in and get me. And um, that changed my mindset. I was in such a desperate place at that, at that point in my captivity that um, it was helpful to have a reminder that somebody was really trying hard from the outside to get, to get me out. It's interesting that, you know, if you study, um, you know, hostage situations and then you study releases, the, the most dangerous part of the whole scenario effectively is in the release or in the kind of the, the pickup, so to speak. And I'm sure that, you know, you had you covered foreign reporting from all over the world and most foreign reporters get some, whether it's UN training, army training or whatever. And we're all told, you know, some basics that must have really pressed on you because you knew the risks. You'd been in these types of obviously you hadn't been in a hostage scenario before. But as a foreign reporter, you would have known uh, certain aspects of it. 
Oh, I knew the risks. In fact, um, having done the homework helped me survive. I mean, I knew what I was up against once I was captured. Um, One thing that I wish I had been trained in beforehand um, was a hunger strike. So when I first did a hunger strike um, to get some chains off my feet in Somalia, I I don't think I knew what I was in for. And the, the sort of psychological effects that starving yourself, even for half a day, can have. Uh, especially when you're hungry anyway, and the effects on your body, too, um, were something I had to learn just by doing it, and that was um, sort of an uphill struggle. Can we talk about your release? Because um, I found this part of the memoir very um, very moving. You were on the flight back from Abu Dhabi to Berlin, and a flight attendant asked you whether you wanted a change of silverware between the courses, yeah. which um, I laughed, and um, probably inappropriately, but um, it, oh, was, um, no, it was just so surreal. And we've all been in these situations, whether we've had a dying parent or we've come out of uh, very bad medical news. And then something very pedestrian is thrown slap into your face and you have to kind of candidly be polite but you just go into meltdown but you kind of recover yourself but you you write the question lay so far outside my recent experience that I just sort of wagged my jaw I had no idea what to say I was in a fugue state dissociated from my old life and old self and and ever while I returned to it I thought that was beautiful but it was um, it must have been so surreal it was. I mean, uh, I barely had a single set of silverware when I was in Somalia. I think I just had a fork, maybe a spoon. Uh, and so for someone to bring me food and then in the middle of it ask if I wanted to change a silverware was completely weird. Um, I, I really, it took me off it took me off guard. I didn't know what to say. Just after you were released, uh, Mike, um, I know there was um, um, uh, a feud between some of the rival gangs or as you call clans. And um, there was a big, effectively, shootout. And um, you found out about this uh, subsequently. And, you know, um, some of your guards, some of your captors uh, were killed in that um, uh, shootout. I'm just wondering, how did you not just deal with that process that are, um, you know, it, that must have kind of presented you with a kind of a, a moral dilemma because, you know, humility, um, grace and general general uh, humanity would uh, tell you to, um, to go, oh my God, and all the rest. But these guys were your tormentors. They kicked the crap out of you, basically, and uh-huh. you nearly lost your life. So that must have been a, um, a kind of an unusual uh, type of uh, road to walk with that, was it? Oh, yeah, the emotions were mixed, but uh, not too mixed. I, uh, so that was two halves of the same gang. Uh, I don't think it, it involved uh, clan tensions at all. It was um, the, the pirate gang that held me was quite large. So the two main halves that had been responsible for me at two different parts, uh, two different times in my uh, captivity, got together to discuss disbursement, I think, of the ransom. And they pretty quickly had a disagreement, and they started to shoot. And two of the top bosses lost, lost their lives in that shootout, and three sort of mid-level bosses. I, Of course, it was shocking and horrible to hear about it first, but um, it did not leave a lasting sense of grief or regret um, the way, let's say, the, the killing of some of my guards who I'd gotten to know would have done. I think the, the, the guards were the low men on the totem, totem pole, and if I'd been rescued, um, let's say, by an American SEAL team, 
uh, those guys would have been the first to go. They would have they would have lost their lives, and I, I would have thought about it. Um, the way it turned out, with some of the top guys who were calling the shots, getting shot themselves, um, was struck me as a form of justice. When you got back to Germany, I know your friends uh, had cleaned out your apartment. They had to remove uh, some of the clothes and everything and your drawers and all this type of stuff. Because obviously, you know, apartment that wasn't lived in uh, for a couple of uh, years, you know, and the problems that can happen. But you write about, you know, you to do these debriefs at the embassy and, um, you know, your bones were in bad shape. Your muscles were in bad shape. For walking for longer than 20 minutes, you had a lot of difficulty. And I'm just wondering, you know, a lot of people, when you get through something uh, very traumatic, whether it's a traumatic accident or, in your case, um, a hostage situation, or you could uh, survive a really tough illness where it's not wasn't looking good at one stage, you know, and you come out mm-hmm. and you survive it, and that's the big picture. But you also have to deal with the small stuff, and you know, I can only imagine from reading through the book, I can imagine that you possibly have had lots of dental problems, um, you know, small stuff, but they can it can actually get in on you. Um, I'm just wondering about that because the big picture was you were released. But the little right. details you had to deal with, you to build up your legs, you to build up the muscles in your legs. I'm sure that, you know, apart from the, you know, the mental stress of it all, there was the whole physicality of the experience and what it did to your body. Yeah. And I don't think I realized quite how weak I was when I got out because I had um, tried to keep in shape by doing yoga, which certainly helped and it certainly helped mentally. But uh, my only real exercise was walking um, from between my bed and the bathroom. So I didn't pace around in my room like some people do. Uh, Some people even try to jog in their cells when they're held captive. I think if I had tried to jog, my pirates would have shot me. But uh, that meant that once I got back to Berlin and tried to lead a normal life, which meant Berlin's a walking city, so um, once I tried to walk for a normal day, I felt like I'd played a game of football or something. And um, I I was in really bad shape. Uh, One doctor said because of a protein deficiency, not just, I had not just mental problems, but also sort of connected tissue problems, simply because I wasn't fed enough protein. Um, and once I learned that, it helped, helped me recover. Uh, but it obviously took a long time, and my, I think my body's in a different shape. I'm just wondering, in writing The Desert and the Sea, it's uh, such a powerful memoir and um, it's um, very emotionally rich and and all the rest. But did it help you in some way or is that a bit kind of simplistic to think that, you know, by writing things down that you can kind of open it up and open up your understanding? I don't think it's simplistic at all. I, I, I never thought of writing as therapy because I approach it like a craft. You know, I think of I think of it in terms of um, I think of a book in terms of structure and not not sort of self-expression necessarily, but it turns out that the sort of therapy that they put ex, ex-hostages or anyone who's suffered trauma through, um, if it's talk therapy, is a, a question of trying to put all, all sorts of disparate experiences and painful experiences into a narrative order. <laughs> That's what I did with the book. So it absolutely helped. I would not have been so fluent with this material if I had not written the book. Presumably, whether it's whether your mum was reading it, her partner and your friends and so on, that has given you a new resolve possibly in life, but also possibly a new understanding of yourself and your own grit, your own metal. Mm-hmm. Has mm-hmm. it? Oh, I, th- I think so. I mean, I, just just writing it again, I, it, once I had to put it into words, it was a little bit incredible what I'd actually survived.
And we're talking from Dublin to London today and, um, you know, you're doing a lot of interviews around the book. So you're there pacing the streets, you're walking around, you're going to all these fancy um, book launches and, um, you know, writers meetings and all the rest. I'm just wondering, like, there you are and you're performing, but you're talking about something that has deeply shaped who and what you are. Yeah. Um, that must be an interesting space, is it? Because yeah. it must bring you right back front and centre into sitting on the sand and um, having your mango juice with a guy with a AK-47 beside you. Well, first of all, it's, it's a little bit surreal. I mean, while I was in Somalia, my life in the West seemed like another planet. And now, of course, thinking back on Somalia, it's like thinking about Mars. But, um, and, and being able to do this is, of course, a very great privilege. Um, talking about it, <clears throat> I, it doesn't bring me right back. I, I don't go, it's not like a flashback to a war or something like that. I, I can talk about it without being um, completely emotional about it. But uh, it is, yeah, yeah the, the separation between the actual experience and, and the experience of promoting the book is, is like a wide gulf, sure. So last question for you, Mike. What is the hope with the memoir? Um, as I said, you're putting a lot of interesting questions out to the reader, and I presume of yourself as well. So, so what's the hope and what do you want the reader to reflect upon? Well, the best responses I've gotten have, have been from people who found something in this book about a completely alien place that was relevant to themselves. And uh, that's, that's the best you can hope for with any sort of book. Um, I, I think that the fact that I've somehow made it relevant emotionally uh, to, to people, even though the material is, um, is, is foreign to most readers in the West, uh, is, is extremely satisfying. Um, it's also a journalistic memoir. I hope to teach people about East Africa a little bit. Um, I, I want it to be more than just a, a story of survival because I went there to write a very different book about Somalia and, and why pirates existed in the first place in the modern world. Um, but I, I hope that, that people can read it and, and get quite a bit, um, both personal and, 